Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Who doesn't love a sporting upset when the script gets completely flipped and the minnow turns the tables on the big nation? In the arms of Matabasi. This is very good from the Fijian pack. Now to Isoi, to Marin, and the Fijians are in. Oh, magic, magic, Fiji. In 2021, just a week after the All Blacks put more than 100 unanswered points on Tonga in Auckland, they found themselves down in Dunedin, struggling against Fiji. With 60 minutes showing on the clock, the Fijians were just eight points behind and still very much in the game. Here they go again. This looks good. This looks really good. Can they go all the way? No, the All Blacks have got a hand in there. Penalty try! Penalty try to Fiji! <laughs> New Zealand ended up running out comfortable winners, 57-23. But it was still clear there was a gulf in performance between Fiji and Tonga. A gulf in performance... Mirrored by a gulf in opportunities as they move towards the Rugby World Cup. We've got in the pipeline a few Tier One Test matches. It's probably our strongest calendar that we've had in terms of leaning into a World Cup. So we're pretty happy in terms of our preparation. This is fair game. Pacific rugby against the world. It's a story about rugby. Why to Lamu? He's got the bounce. He's handed up his opposite. But it's also a story about money and power. Oh, it's it's not a fair game now because certainly the island nations haven't uh, got enough money. Sometimes they have to choose between representing their their country or um, not being paid. History and race. I can remember being told to piss off back to the islands. You coconut. Is it a fair game? A year after that game in Dunedin, we're poolside at the Fijian team hotel in Nadi, Fiji. At the tail end of the Pacific Nations Cup with former Fijian captain Simon Rawalui. He's now the high performance manager for his old team. And kind of a big deal. Yeah, Simon's a big guy, like literally six foot six, 130 kilos. And people who know rugby in the Pacific point to his influence as a game changer for Fiji in the last few years. See, the foundations of Fiji rugby have been strong for a while. They are the reigning Olympic Sevens champions. It's over! And there's a golden glow hanging over a beautiful nation. Back-to-back Olympic glory for Fiji. And with their courageous quarter-final challenge against the Springboks in 2007... <laughs> What a... Fiji's best players is missing and they're stuffing the South Africans with 14 men. They're the most recent Pacific team to make the knockout stages of the Rugby World Cup. And there's been a deliberate decision to build on that by the powers that be. Can you talk to some of the concrete examples around what World Rugby is doing for Fiji Rugby? 
they invest into the country. They invest into the union, the high performance. So it's a direct investment into our academies, the growth, the pathways. Like I said, we're pushing that, not just the players, the staff, the medical, SNC. Want to get it into the referees. We want to start up a medical academy. So our doctors and physios, they are all pushing up through and coming through our system. If you've listened to this series from the start, because you definitely didn't skip to the episode with your Pacific nation, you probably weren't expecting an intro with all the great things World Rugby is doing for a Pacific island. Obviously, there's the direct investment into the draw. They have a direct investment in their participation, So, as they do with the Moana. So their investment is significant in terms of financial, but it's also significant in terms of support. That parallel between World Rugby's investment in the Fijian Drua and Moana Pacifica is an interesting one. Remember, the Drua are a dedicated Fijian team based in Fiji for the Super Rugby Pacific competition, whereas Moana Pacifica, a blend of Tongan and Samoan players that also nominally includes other Pacific nations, like the Cooks in Nui, their base is in Auckland. From a distance, it's easy to group Fiji, Tonga and Samoa under that Pacific umbrella. But close up, there are some pretty significant differences. For a start, Fiji's indigenous people are Melanesian, unlike the Polynesians of Tonga and Samoa, meaning Fijian culture has more in common with Vanuatu and the Solomons than its Pacific neighbours. The three nations have interacted for centuries, though, traded, migrated, even gone to war. Look at a map and you'll see they form a sort of central triangle to the Pacific nations, with Hawaii at the top, Aotearoa New Zealand to the south, Rapa Nui or Easter Island to the east, and Palau and New Guinea to the west. With around 900,000 people, Fiji is more than four times the size of Samoa and seven times the size of Tonga's on-island populations, with all the associated economic benefits that brings. Although, as Simon Rywa-Louis points out, Samoa and Tonga have a strong heritage base with players coming through New Zealand and Australia, which is less the case for Fiji. We all, we're all Pacific brothers. We're all good friends. We know each other. We're good friends amongst the players, amongst the staff. I've got lifelong friends that have played for both countries. But we do tend to get grouped together when we talk about rugby. The times all say Pacific rugby. So there's different needs, there's different strengths, different demographics in terms of our identity. We do identify differently, Fijians, Samoans and Tongans. We love each other, but we want to... <laughs> when there's a battle, there's a battle. We're competitive cousins. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> but there's a growing perception of favouritism off the field. And those family ties are starting to fray. Fiji's in a very different position than we are as Samoan Tongan. You know, they get the majority of World Rugby targeted funding now. I've seen a, a massive amount of investment into the stadiums, the Fiji draw, being able to play those at home. This is Dan Leo, another big man in more than one sense. In 2006, the former Samoan captain played lock alongside Simon Rawalui for the Pacific Islanders, a combined team representing Tonga, Fiji and Samoa that came together for tours to the Tier 1 nations from 2004 to 2008. Dan Leo is now head of Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, an association that supports professional and semi-professional players of Pacific heritage. And he's frustrated that Fiji seem to be getting the lion's share of what's on offer. 
as an organisation, World Rugby probably would be happy to see one of the Pacific Island teams which is looking like Fiji flourish. They can put all their investment there and I think from what I can understand, I'd be happy for Samoa and Tonga just to fade away because they don't know what to do with us. But that can't be right, can it? Is it a fair game? I'm John Daniel. I'm James Nokise. Bulavanaka. This episode, we're focusing on Fiji. It's about performance, politics, and power. We want to understand how Fiji has taken that step to the next level, because it seems like a lot has happened off the field as well as on it. John decided to go straight to the top. There's also been a considerable investment in Fiji, targeted directly at Fiji, it seems, from World Rugby. Is that right? Yes. Well, not only to Fiji, as part of the governance reform, we were tasked, you know, you're familiar with, we were Tier 1, Tier 2, Tier 3. This is Kathy Wong, a highly respected sports administrator from Fiji and one of Oceania's two representatives on the World Rugby Council. Oceania is World Rugby's regional association for the Pacific, covering 14 member unions of all sizes, from Australia and New Zealand to American Samoa, Nauru and Tuvalu as well as Fiji, Donga and Samoa. Having begun as a physiotherapist for the Fijian team in the 1980s, Kathy's small stature cuts a striking figure in rugby circles, but she's absolutely an operator, often described as indomitable. And she's accustomed to leadership and governance roles, including chef de mission for Fiji's Olympic team when they won gold at the Rugby Sevens in Rio in 2016. And most recently, as a member of the World Rugby Council through her representation of Oceania, Kathy Wong's been sitting on a governance reform committee overseeing changes to world rugby structure. Well, that's good, isn't it? In theory, absolutely. In practice, to be honest, I was pretty surprised by what she had to say. Instead of the old tier system, world rugby now has a new way of evaluating who gets the money based on performance. So if you're a high-performing union, you got X number of dollars. If you're a performing union, you got X number of dollars. Hence, the investment into Fiji rugby was a little bit more than, I would say, other unions that were also saved here. So is Fiji rugby considered a high-performing union or a performing union? Performing union. Right. Yeah. And Tonga and Samoa are developing unions, are they? Is that right? Developing unions, yes. So if they play more games and they perform better, then they can move into a high-performing union. Okay, so just let me get my head around this because honestly, I'm not sure I fully understand the ramifications of what I'm hearing. I mean, in principle, a new system is good because the old one with the tears, I mean, that was rotten. Yeah, but it's pretty hard to understand given we don't know anything about it. I haven't really seen any information about that. That hasn't really come out yet, is that right? No, it hasn't come out because it just basically, you see most people still refer to it as tier one, tier two. This thing is basically just referred down to the union, so the unions now know where they're category. Have we done a public announcement? I don't think we've done a public announcement on it. No, we have not. Is that coming? Because I'm aware that the governance reform review took place during 2020, didn't it? And so it's been nearly two years since you finished that. So there hasn't been any official announcement, but it is just being implemented... It's been implemented without any official announcement. So, yeah, that's your question. Mm-hmm. I guess the headline is that Fiji have done all right. They're a performing union, so still the second of three tiers. 
Remember, top of the pile are high performing, then performing, then developing. And look, this is still all very opaque. But by the sounds of things, the high performing unions, presumably the big boys, New Zealand, England, France, etc., they're all still going to be getting the bulk of the money. Well, I'm reeling from discovering that Donga and Samoa are now down a grade in the third tier. Sorry, I mean developing unions. Although they can move up if they play more games and perform better. But they can't even get the games. Or if they do, they're playing like Romania, no disrespect. How is that supposed to work? Is it a fair game? One of the things that's come up while we've been making this series is how power works at World Rugby. <laughs> you want me off the line on that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I might... Look, I never got that off-the-record chat with Kathy Wong. I did send follow-up emails, but I'm sure she's very busy. In any case, we're going to hear more from her in that on-the-record interview, and I think it's pretty enlightening. But for now, let's try to get a handle on how Fiji rugby works from the bottom up, rather than the top down. Yeah, remembering those solid foundations that we talked about earlier, we spoke with Lider Movono, a Fijian journalist who's been covering rugby, politics and social issues for more than 20 years. Absolutely everyone in this country, regardless of age, gender or ethnicity, takes ownership or grabs ownership of Fijian rugby, whether they're male or female, 7 to 15, and to an extent, even you know, in terms of the code, everyone here watches. Everyone is out there supporting the Fijian team. And so as a result of that, we're interested in all levels of development of rugby, from, you know, what, what's happening at the primary school level to the provincial competitions to the village competitions. And, and then it you know, goes all the way up to playing on the world stage. According to World Rugby's latest figures from 2018, with 124,000 registered players on Ireland, there are more Fijians playing rugby than in Wales, Scotland, Ireland and Italy. Those are remarkable figures, arguably to be taken with a grain of salt, but we'll hear more about the recent explosion in women's participation in the Fijian game in the next episode. But it's clear they're passionate too. For me as a Fijian, Fiji rugby is right in the middle of my identity. Uh, I have my God, I have my country, and then I have my family, of course, and somewhere in between is Fiji Rugby. This is Sini. We met her in Lautuka on the final day of the Pacific Nations Cup. For us, Fiji Rugby is about the nation coming together, especially after COVID, after hurricanes, after floods. She was also quite enthusiastic about getting us to try some kava. Do you want us to talk a little bit about kava? John? No, I'm yeah. fine. <laughs> Maybe after the game? That's fine, that's fine. When yeah. you come back, I'll be here. I don't think that diminishes her credibility. And there's a Alexia behind the Fiji smile, which is also cover. So you see Fijians, you see rugby, you walk around, you will see cover. Cover culture runs across the Pacific, whether we're Polynesian, Melanesian or Micronesian. And it's not the only cultural similarity where you can hear echoes from Fiji that resonate in Samoa, Tonga and other Pacific nations. Here's Lithe Mofono again. A rugby administrator said to me a few weeks ago, we replaced our tribal warfare with 
rugby competition. And so in a sense, it's kind of been embedded into what was already an existing strong sense of identity about who we were and where we come from. And so that's continued now. Our rugby team have almost just replaced our team of warriors, or Mbati, as we called it in the past. The Mbati were warriors associated with a town or a chief. We have a similar thing in Samoan culture known as Toa. You know, going out to fight for king and country almost, that's continued now. And so that kind of strong sense of identity, um, that kind of team spirit, that just born out of pride in who you are and where you come from, has continued. And in a sense, that's what our national rugby team tends to do. I mean, you see the traditional chant that we do at the beginning of every test match that a Fijian team does. That is, in effect, if you look at the lyrics, a warrior's cry, a warrior's challenge. And that warrior's strength, the way that rugby connects with a sense of identity in the Pacific, that in turn becomes another kind of power. Someone who is national level or elite level rugby player automatically accords you a status that is akin to political leaders, it's akin to being a business leader. You're the top of your industry, so that gives you a certain level of influence. And Lee there says that at a governance level, rugby's influence is embedded through institutions of all sizes right across the country. If you look at the rugby administration at village level, at district level, at provincial level, and then at national level, the people who sit on the board, who sit on the government bodies of a village of rugby teams are heavily influential people. And they also then tend to be political leaders and government leaders. I mean, the Fijian Rugby Union is almost always headed by a prime minister or a military leader and even patronized by the head of state, the president. So the influence that rugby has surpasses almost all the other influence in this country. Rugby is power. That's a phrase we've heard a lot. Yeah, and from a Western perspective, that can be problematic in the sense that the intertwining of rugby and political power is not normal. Really? We'll tell that to John Key and his three-way handshake and his beers in the changing room with the ABs. Or even Helen Clark directly lobbying World Rugby to make sure New Zealand got the World Cup to come here in the first place in 2011. Or Rob Muldoon making sure the Springbok Tour went ahead in 1981 because it was political gold for him. Yeah, that is true, actually. But it's in the Pacific where it goes to the next level. Because you have appointments in Fiji that are basically dictated by the Prime Minister. And in Samoa, the world rugby representative is the former prime minister who put himself in the position of council member while he was in power. He actually hasn't let go of that position, despite no longer being prime minister, which does raise some legitimate questions that may get me banned from the motherland. But we're in Fiji. So what's your point, John? Look, 
I mentioned in the first episode those allegations about how three Fijian players were prevented from playing in the World Cup in 2011 by their club, my old club, racing in Paris, where I was briefly captain. And that whole situation, that got kicked into the grass, right? Yeah, well, it shouldn't have. In 2012, the Fijian Rugby Union were asking the French Union to look into it. And the French Union were saying they would do that. But then Fijian Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama came to racing, ostensibly to watch a game. And the whole thing melted away. So when there should have been serious consequences after you'd done the journalism, you're saying you believe a deal was done behind closed doors. I can't prove that. Well, that's the beauty of Frank, mate. But I genuinely believe it was. And given the timing and the stakes, if the French Union had done what they were being asked to do and instigated an inquiry, racing could have been relegated or expelled and very definitely embarrassed. It seems naive to think there wasn't some sort of value exchange. And that story has kind of just stuck with me ever since. And it really pisses me off. So are you stuck on this because you feel personally implicated as a former player? a former captain of that club? Or is it because you're seeing it as kind of a metaphor for the system? A bit of both, I guess. I wouldn't get too stuck on the captain thing. It's not as if I was Richie McCaw. Actually, we got relegated. Well, I mean, we've all been relegated in life, John. It's fine. <laughs> Look, it's a long story. We sacked the coach. There were some pretty serious financial issues. French clubs can be quite hairy. But yeah, I mean, I do. I just think that when you're... A kind of institution that prides itself on its values and its fairness and its integrity, and it tells everyone that, that, you know, it really gets a lot of mileage about that concept of decency. And then you go and act in this way that is self-dealing, that lines your priorities, your stated priorities as world rugby up as being something that's really more to the advantage of the people who are in power. I think... You, you just lose a lot of traction with the people who you're supposed to be serving. And I think that has real, a, a real-world impact. Time out, time out, time out. Anyway, if all that values chat, which is kind of the bedrock of any sport, if that is just marketing now, we're in trouble. When institutions prefer self-dealing to integrity, the people who rely on those institutions lose trust in them, and I think that has a real-world impact. And Fiji are in full flight here. Look at the skills, the sleight of hand, two-eye again, with a no-look pass. Oh, my goodness me. Is it a fair game? But, and I don't want to be too cynical about this, isn't this just like... Capitalism 101. Stay with me, listeners. I felt you flinch at the C word. I'm just saying, if anything, this whole series has been about understanding that the people with their hands on the levers of power are going to use them to their own advantage. And players are not in positions of power. Yeah, and I find that quite depressing. And I hear that. And we'll get into it with Bill Beaumont in the final episode. And I hear Dan Leo's concern about Donga and Samoa being left behind. But I think there's something else going on here too. Because what you're talking about, it happened 10 years ago, right? And Fiji, in spite of that history, 
is now getting itself into a stronger position in terms of governance and the way it deals with world rugby. Here's journalist Lydia Movorno again. We've had a lot of problems associated with rugby leadership in the past. We've had difficulties, you know, aligning, as a one of a better description, aligning our financial governance uh, records to those that the World Rugby Body requires of you. So I think that in the past several years, at least under the leadership of current rugby administrators, it's meant that we have worked hard Rugby leaders have worked hard to ensure that we're complying with global financial and global accounting standards. But in August of 2022, three employees of Fiji Rugby were fired for financial irregularities after an audit. So when there should have been serious consequences, after you'd done the journalism, you're saying you believe a deal was done behind closed doors? I can't prove that. Well, that's the beauty of Frank. Okay. Nobody's saying it's a perfect situation, but at least they're taking action rather than letting it drift or normalizing what you might describe as poor practices. I think what Lidia is saying here is that there's an engagement with the system that seems to be working for Fiji. And so in a sense, it can be a positive influencer in that way because Fiji, for the first time in the last couple of years, now sits in the World Rugby Council. And in order for them to do that, they needed to work really hard at improving their government systems, improving their accounting systems, and as a result, also improve their ability to turn the world rugby back for the development of ordinary rugby players. And I think getting that traction, being able to turn the world rugby back, as Lide puts it, to bring in that investment for the good of Fijian players, that's what success looks like, given where we're coming from in the Pacific. And that comes from people like Simon Rabalui. We'll hear more from him about what Fiji are doing with that development money. And Kathy Wong. For me, the success was getting people to buy in to understand that this is not a short-term benefit for them to stay the hard yard and sit there for seven to eight years, then you will see results. Once the whole mindset of rugby, not only in Fiji, I hope will translate into the rest of the Pacific, that results comes after years of practice, years of training and years of hard work, then you find it starts to emanate itself into performance of the field. And that decision to play a long game with internal change at Fiji Rugby. Kathy says that's led to real progress through the changes in voting at World Rugby. So she believes they hear the concerns from the Pacific now. In the past, it, it was a total, total disconnect. One of the great advantages of now having Fiji on World Rugby Council, Samoa on World Rugby Council, and the second person is Oceania, is the Oceania region now has a bigger voice at World Rugby Council. Remember, Oceania is the region that includes Fiji, Tonga and Samoa, smaller nations like Nui and the Cook Islands and the big boys, Australia and New Zealand. So that's effectively three more Pacific votes on an expanded World Rugby Council. This all stems from those reforms that I mentioned from 2015. Before that, there was only one vote across the whole of Oceania for the Pacific, but two votes for Wales, two votes for Scotland, England, Ireland, New Zealand and Australia. 
what they call founder members, founder unions, voted themselves considerable additional payments 15, 20 years ago. And, I mean, if the makeup of the people who vote was different, I think you would have got a very different result, wouldn't you? Correct, correct. Hence, as I said, the voting has not changed yet. That's going to be for the future. Kathy Wong says that fresh reform to the voting system was considered too delicate to achieve over Zoom meetings during COVID and could still take years. I mean, you have some countries that have three votes and some countries have one vote. Some countries have no vote. Tonga. Yeah, so that system still exists. When will that change? How will it change? I don't have the answers for you at that stage. Uh, That's something World Rugby has to look at. Is it a fair system? Is it an unfair system? Again, I don't have the answers. I think World Rugby, we have to look within ourselves to see what is the best way forward on this. As I said, I don't have the answers for that. But you are correct with the power thing. It all depends. It comes down to the voting system. The funny thing is, for decades, England had six votes. The other home nations had two each. And despite being the dominant playing nations, New Zealand, Australia and South Africa only got to vote in 1948. And even then it was only one. I mean, it's so Anglo-centric that the French were only allowed in in 1978. So this frankly weird situation with the voting, everyone apart from England, the original colonial masters, OGs, have just been on the receiving end at some point. That's right. In fact, England, officially speaking, aren't even England. You know how all the rugby unions are like New Zealand rugby, Fiji rugby, whatever? Technically, the English rugby union are just the rugby football union, the RFU, on the grounds that they invented it. Because it's their ball, and they'll take it home if they feel like it. For a long time, the power of the governing body was relatively muted, confined to occasional law changes. But that all changed with the rise of professionalism and money. And suddenly, those decisions could make a huge difference to the fate of any individual country. So how does it actually work? Well, there aren't any obvious parallels because of the weird voting system, as discussed, like Italy, three votes, Scotland, three votes... Africa, two votes. But the United Nations is a start in the sense that you have a bunch of different representatives from different countries discussing issues and making decisions that are then carried out by a kind of global civil service employed by World Rugby. And there's a kind of security council, the executive committee, or EXCO. EXCO is just a working arm. The decision still lies with council. That's where the power sits. And some pretty serious horse trading goes on at council. Oh, yes. So that horse trading, deal-making, whatever you want to call it, that's where it gets interesting. As I said, I didn't get an off-the-record chat with Kathy, and she didn't want to discuss exactly how it worked on the record. But I did speak to another World Rugby insider who wouldn't be named, but who gave me a few insights. One example had to do with France and Australia. If you looked at the Northern Hemisphere tours to the Southern Hemisphere in 2021, basically at the height of COVID, there was a Lions tour that went ahead to South Africa. It was marginal until the last minute, but the financial interests on both sides of a Lions tour are massive. The biggest in rugby after the World Cup, so it was always going to happen, if at all possible. Three test matches coming to you live from this stadium. A stadium that holds well over 60,000 people. And for reasons so well known, no spectators here. That was such a weird tour because it was like 
played in front of empty stadiums, right? Yeah, but the broadcasting and sponsorship rights there are worth a fortune. And they kept the lights on for South Africa through COVID. So how do France and Australia come into it? Okay, apart from that Lions tour, all the other Northern Hemisphere tours south got cancelled. So those All Black games last year against Tonga and Fiji, they were just filling in for Scotland and Wales, who, understandably, given the COVID situation, pulled out. But the French team came to Australia, leaving France before the end of their domestic championship, completed quarantine and played a three-test series in the space of 11 days. That just seems like a logistical nightmare and borderline crazy around player welfare. So why? Rugby Australia were really struggling financially. They got smashed by COVID and if they didn't get the hit from those test matches, it could have been a disaster. They were talking about taking the game back to amateur status. It's been 31 years since France have won in Australia tonight a famous victory in Melbourne. Okay, so the French do the Aussies a solid by coming down to them in the middle of a pandemic. What do they get in return? Well, this is it. What I was told is that Bernard Laporte, head of French rugby and deputy head of world rugby, wants Australia's three votes, which will pretty much tilt the balance in his favour if he decides to run for head of world rugby. And this way they owe him one? Well, three. So those votes, you can use them as leverage to turn them into money? Or power. At the last vote for the head of world rugby in 2020, where the Englishman Bill Beaumont is opposed to the Argentinian Gus Pichot, the vote is very close. Beaumont wins in the end, 28-23, and two of the floating votes are Fiji and Samoa. Pichot, having lost quits World Rugby, claiming he was betrayed, and says, quote, favours are being made on the edge of ethics. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it kind of feels shocking because we don't normally see how the sausage gets made. But on the other, isn't this just politics? Like, more importantly, what did Fiji and Samoa get? Well, what Fiji gets kind of explodes in their faces because at the same time, head of Fiji Rugby, Francis Keane, is nominated for the executive committee, Exco. It's a big deal because it's the first time someone from the Pacific gets to sit at the big table. But then Dan Leal, from Pacific Rugby Players Welfare, who we heard from earlier, he blows the whistle on Francis King. There's a lot of press about it. Stephen Jones, the rugby correspondent from the Sunday Times in London, writes an excoriating piece. Amazing twist. I'm very happy we're turning into a true crime podcast. Just blows the whistle on what exactly, John? Keane, who is Frank Benimarama's brother-in-law, has also been convicted for manslaughter. Some very serious allegations about his behaviour as head of Fiji's prison service emerge, and in the end, he is withdrawn as a candidate from Exco, and shortly afterwards, steps down from Fiji rugby. But there's another person offered the opportunity to sit at the big table. A Fijian woman. I was approached to sit on Exco at that time, and at that time I said no. I felt I was not ready. Oh, damn, that's a shame. I can't help thinking Kathy Wong would have been good in that role. You're not the only one to think that. And when people say there's a missed opportunity, I said no, I don't look at it that way. I felt that if I said yes, I had to be confident enough, and I myself realised that whether I got voted in or not was not the point. I could have been not voted in, that's fine. 
And somebody said, you don't have to be voted. I said, for me, if I put my hands up for a position, I need to be competent and qualified for that position. And I realized that I was not ready to sit in FGO at that stage. Maybe ask me in one year, two years time, I think I'll do it. But right at that time, in Francis King was nominated because I was asked and I said no. And this goes back to Kathy's insistence on a long game when it comes to change inside an institution like world rugby. Is it a fair game? game, game, game. For so long, it's been dominated by this very centralised cabal of teams and it takes a lot to get it out of their clutches. Yes, you are correct in that. I actually don't have the answers for you right now. It's it's something that has to be worked out. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about players not being available. It took us almost six years to work around constitutional change to get that slowly changing where players had to be made available. And, and we still struggle. We still struggle through that. Don't get me wrong, it's still a struggle to make sure players are available for their national union. But it took us that long to get the constitutional change to get that done. Now again, it's important to remember that while there have been issues around Pacific players getting back to play for their national teams when they're contracted to European clubs, those clubs have offered vital experience at top level. Playing for European clubs overseas has taught me a lot about being a professional rugby player. This is Nemani Nangusa, the veteran flanker who captained Bindrua in their inaugural year in Super Rugby Pacific. He previously played for Newcastle in England and Aurillac in France. And he says being able to pass on what he learned in those environments has been invaluable. Nangusa. Nangusa floating it over the top to Rabel Taumanda. In turn finds Ikanavere, who finishes like a winger. And I think to bring that experience into the draw side, especially with a lot of young boys straight from the islands, never experienced what I've experienced to play for a professional club, I think it really helps to be here and just helping the young boys out with uh, professionalism and uh, how to train in a professional environment. But now, Fiji's young talent can play professionally on island. Namani Nangusa says that's going to make a huge difference, both professionally and personally. I'm really stoked for these young boys coming up. Now they have a team to work hard and play for in this uh, Super Rugby, like a competition that everyone looks up to all around the world. And so it's a really, really great opportunity for the young players coming up just to work hard and try to make it to the Fijian side. They set up for Ambossi, and he got away from one, two, four. Speedster alert. He gets the yellow boots pumping, gets it away to Revovo, who says, let's go, go! Revovo! Let the crowd tell the story. Before we had to travel, played in France, in England. It's a long way from home. Struggled with being away from our families. But now I get to play like in front of my families and they can come and watch me play and uh, get paid to play and uh, help them out too. Like Moana Pacifica, the Drua won just two games in 2022 but injected some much-needed interest into the competition and are sure to take another step up in 2023. The first ever Fijian side to compete in uh, Super Rugby, to come together in such a short period of time and uh, compete against teams uh, who have been 20, 20 plus years in the competition. Yeah, we're still learning. That's all I can say. Like, we're still learning. If we get the same 
table laid out for us is every other nation. I think we can compete with any nation in the world. I believe that wholeheartedly within my being. This is Simon Rabalui again, Fiji's head of high performance. I think we have the talent, we have the infrastructure that's growing, we need to build that, but I do think that we can compete at the highest level consistently. And the word I say, I emphasise is consistently, because we can play well in games, but we need to do it four, five, six games in a row. And that comes down to preparation, everything, how you build your team. Simon is another of Fiji rugby's leaders with an eye on the long game. And part of that comes from his own deep roots in top-level rugby. And you've been involved in the professional game for 20, 25 years? Yes, yeah, yeah, since 1996, 97. Since it went pro? Yeah, so a year after I went over to Europe, it was a year before it turned pro in the UK. I was in the UK for 10 years and then in France for 11 years. So are you like the first Fiji manager to have the kind of experience that you bring in terms of that international? I'm trying to think. I'd be one of the first. I was probably one of the first to go over to Europe in terms of playing. We had obviously players that play over there, but from a professional era, I was one of the first probably to go over there. Yeah, he's quite softly spoken and it's hard to get his full CV out of him, but Simon has this amazing breadth of connections across the rugby playing world. He's born in New Zealand, grows up in Australia, plays Australian schoolboys, then heads to the UK where he plays for major clubs there, including Saracens, where he's captain, then on to racing in France, where he's again captain. Having also led Fiji and the Pacific Islanders, he then goes into management and coaching, where, prior to his role in Fiji, he was forwards coach to the Wallabies. Representing the 20 nations of Rugby World Cup, 20 legends of rugby. Representing Fiji, Simon Raimalui. I've got a lot of admiration for Simon. This is Dan Leo, head of Pacific Rugby Players Welfare again. He says he and Simon don't always see eye to eye, but that depth of experience is incredibly valuable to a place like Fiji. Having someone like that is crucial, that understands the islands and the way the islands work, but has that professional rugby experience as well, not just from a playing point of view, but he's actually managed some of the top, you know, he understands, he speaks French fluently. He's managed that front, say, in Racing Metro again, when we're talking about those power structures. <laughs> it's two of, the, two of the most influential clubs in the French top 14, the most influential union. So he understands that and very good at playing the game as well. You know, it's pretty non-offensive. And I think it's, it's that long game and just being able to work those inner circles to the well-being of what his objective is for Fiji. Yeah, and look, rugby is such a small world at that top level and relationships are crucial. Carrying the mana of being a former player and all those different connections and even just the size of a guy in a quiet, bearish way it adds up to quite a lot of soft power when you walk into a room in London or Dublin or Paris with that kind of background because you have a lot of weight. Just always had a goal. I wanted to come back to Fiji. I played for Fiji and I wanted to come back and I wanted to give to the Pacific. And not even Fiji. I wanted to come back to the Pacific. I wanted to come back. Because it's my passion. I want us to succeed. I want Fiji to succeed, first and foremost. But I want to see Samoa and Tonga succeed as well. And I'll always say we have to grow together successful and yeah I think that's where my background ties in I don't pretend to be the big super intelligent with numbers and stuff like that but I know what's needed and I know world rugby is very supportive in my role and they know that what I'm pushing for is I think the best for what we're trying to achieve now I think that's great but 
reading between the lines, there is still some tension there around rich cousins and poor cousins. And this is all relatively speaking, right? Because Fiji has access not just to that natural talent pool that some would say is the birthright of the Pacific. Beauty about Fiji is a local competition. Diamonds just jump up from nowhere. But also through world rugby funding to a really strong academy system. We've got our academies, we've got our elite, we've got our apprentice and we've got our pre-academy. So we've got 90 boys within our academy. We've got 30 girls in our women's academy that we started up in 2020. And that kind of program is a long way ahead of Tonga and Samoa. I talked to Selala with Tonga and that, and I know they're smaller countries in terms of population and stuff like that. I've talked on how did they benefit from our biggest structure. Can we bring in a referee into mm. our referees academy to give them experience so they get it? Can we bring in one or two players into the academy where they're getting all the benefits of coming into a bigger structure? So on the one hand, that is very gracious from our Fijian cousins. But on the other hand, why can't we get that in Samoa? Why can't that happen in Donga? Fiji, at a high performance level, has an ambition a level of ambition, and it's quite conscious of not wanting to get dragged down by Tonga and Samoa, who may or may not have their house in order. Simon is correct. I mean, Simon will do what's best for Fiji rugby. And that is totally valid. It's hard enough for anyone to generate momentum in the Pacific without adding on expectations around doing stuff outside your own job description. Look, I don't think anyone is throwing stones at Simon or Fiji for showing they can adapt successfully and get things done. If anything, it demonstrates that this is possible. And that's something to celebrate. At the same time, you can see how it might cause tension with other members of the family who are feeling left out. Totally. Now remember, while Kathy Wong is Fijian, she represents Oceania at World Rugby. So she stands in that space on behalf of the whole of the Pacific. I had this conversation with the chair of Fiji Rugby and they very straight. They said, Kathy, this is what we want. This is Fiji Rugby's objective. It may not be in line with Oceania Rugby's objective, but I can totally understand that. As individual independent member unions, they have the right to their vision. This is what they're focused on. But I think this is where I try and use our Pacific brotherhood and sisterhood to say, yes, this is your focus. But remember, in this part of the region, don't forget where you came from, where you were at one time. That's where the other member unions are now. Written and produced by James Norkise, Tale Anderson and John Daniel for Bird of Paradise Productions, Radio New Zealand and Pacific Media Network. Language Programme Director, Matt Tufunga. Executive Producers for RNZ, Justin Gregory, Katie Gossett and Tim Watkin. Sound Engineers, Rangi Poek, Alex Harmer and Jeremy Ansel for RNZ, Harrison Edwards at PMN. Music and Sound Design, Anonymous, Faumu Mafu Salapo. Visuals, Manatoa Productions, Anonymous, and Krista Barnaby for RNZ. Additional reporting by Lethe Mavono. Additional sound recorded by Rudy Bartley at WT Media in Samoa. Special thanks to Don Mann, Louis Villasoni, Langipoiva, Cheryl Jackson, Jody Hoane, Josie Campbell, Elijah Fafio, and Ingangaro Fakafi. Thanks to Sky Sport, TVNZ, TV3, and Discovery for game audio from TV broadcasts. RNZ Commissioning, Jody Hwane, Tim Burnell. RNZ Acting Head of Content, Veronica Schmidt. RNZ Interim Chief Content Officer, Megan Whelan. Hold up. 
Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.